Hello and welcome to another episode of the Marketing Meetup Podcast. My name is Joe Glover. In this episode, you'll be hearing from the Taz Thornton. Taz is known for unleashing your awesome. And awesome is just an absolutely perfect word to describe Taz too. What does that mean? Well, you'll have to see or hear more specifically because this is a podcast. I'd really encourage you just to stick through this talk because what it does is put the responsibility on your shoulders to do what fulfills you and makes you happy. Now that sounds like a simple concept but the way she comes across is simply sublime. I really recommend this talk wholeheartedly. Just as a warning, this talk does contain a lot of swearing, including the C word, and also discussion of topics which may make some people feel uncomfortable. Personally, I think that sense of discomfort is actually a very conscious thing that Taz does to get us to challenge ourselves and move forward. And I, I think the same applies to her swearing too. And on both of those notes, I actually think that's a really, really good thing. Nonetheless, if you think this might upset you, then this ep- it really isn't the podcast episode for you. And I'd really encourage you to check out the rest of the podcast episodes already out there from the Marketing Meetup. If you want more from the Marketing Meetup, you can head to themarketingmeetup.com or come to one of our events. Taz blew the audience away with this talk. It's something a bit different from the Marketing Meetup, but as I say, stick with it and I think you'll really, really enjoy it. Welcome was almost worth driving all the way from Spalding for. Almost. <laughs> okay, so thank you everybody for looking at my beautiful single slide. I don't do anything in marketing now. I always find it's a little bit of a shock when anybody says, Will you come and speak at my marketing event? I've got one to go to in Milan in November. You want me to come and speak? Really? Okay, don't do that shit anymore. And of course, it's not shit. It's amazing. But it's not really what I do now, except it is. It kind of is, but it's for. One man bands, I work with a lot of coaches. Actually, I, yeah, I'm a coach now. That's a bad word, that isn't it? A coach. Because nobody knows what the fuck coaches do. Um, thank you for saying what the F, because it means that, you know, I now know that I'm not allowed to say fuck, so that's always a good start, I think. <laughs> but I won't go any further. I promise I won't say cunt, because that'll be going too far. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, we found the level. Okay, so, so what do I want to talk to you about? I'm not really going to talk about marketing, I'm going to talk a little bit about storytelling, a bit about what I find is now quite important about authenticity, even though that's become one of those words that's a bit like coach, where everybody goes, oh, authenticity, they're talking about that again. And I want to talk a little bit about my backstory and about why I'm no longer doing marketing. So in my past, I've been a journalist. Boo! (laughs) I've been manager of marketing department. I've co-run a PR business. And then I just fell out of love with it. Sort of. Sort of. So if I go back to early 20s, when everything was in sepia and wheels were square and all of that. <laughs> you, didn't, you weren't supposed to laugh at that. You were supposed to argue with me. <laughs> uh, honestly. Joe, no, where have you got these people from? Honestly. <laughs> I thought I loved it. I was always big into goal setting. So at 16, I went on work experience from my local to my local newspaper. 
halfway through, about to sit my A-levels, I'm going to go and do this because you have to do it, and they said, you're really good and we want you to stay. And I'm like, oh, screw you A-levels, I'm going to go and do this. Um, within probably a few months of working there, I'd looked up at the news editor, who, so who's the one who kind of essentially runs the newsroom and tells people off a lot, and I thought, I want to do that. And I got to the point of news editor by the age of 20, which was ridiculous. And then I set another goal. That's what I was doing. Everything was adrenaline. None of, it, none of my life back then was, what do I want in here? What do I want in here? It was, oh, what does this want? What's going to satisfy my ego? Right, what do I want next? I want to be news editor, and then I want to go and do some marketing. So I got headhunted to go and work in an FE college. And that was great for a while. I went in down there, left as marketing manager, having worked out that actually I hated it. Actually, I didn't hate the job. People don't leave bad jobs, do they? They leave bad bosses. The boss, who has ever met somebody with small man syndrome? Yeah? Is there anybody in the room with small man syndrome? I know it's not you. Because <laughs> you're not going to own up, and if you did stick your hand up, I probably wouldn't see it, so that's okay. So, <laughs> stereotypical, terrible, terrible. I'd see grown men coming out of the short little guy's office and walk across the courtyard and burst into tears. It was hideous. Anyway, I got out of that. I got headhunted for another job. I went into marketing again for a book publishing company. That was great. You know, books, that's the journalistic bit. And marketing, everything I thought I loved. And then I got out of that. And then I decided I needed to go back into journalism because that was where I thought my heart lie. Lay, lie, lay, lay. And I ended up going to work in the South East. Now, that's really, really interesting where I was at the time. I grew up in Leicestershire. My first newspaper was in northwest Leicestershire and it didn't really get much more exciting than an Easter bonnet parade. I lie, we did have a murder, we did have somebody who'd been buried under a patio for years and they found it, that was quite exciting. So I go and... <laughs> it is! Honestly, it's exciting going to find a house and saying, excuse me, there's a body over there, can I put it up into your bedroom and take some pictures? That's exciting! And intrusive, and hideous, but you know, at the time I thought I loved it so that's okay. So I went from there into working for newspapers in South East London and my patch, the West patch, on uh, Greater London's oldest weekly free newspaper, it's called the New Shopper, what a crap name for a new company, really shit name. So I ended up working there and my first week as chief reporter covering Blackheath, Greenwich, Lewisham, Elton, covering things like the building of the Millennium Dome, the Stephen Lawrence case, some big weighty stuff. My first week, we didn't have a front page leader. I've got one, I've got one, I've got one. What have you got, what have you got? Well, the local police have just told me that there's this gang of girls and they've been in Lewisham and they've got on the bus on the way home from school and they've been the crap out of the bus driver with a lead pipe and they don't know if he's going to live. He's going to die. It's touch and go. And they just went, meh. No, you don't get it. There's a gang of teenage girls who have just beaten a bus driver to within an inch of his life. And they're like, yeah, that was every week. Okay, so that was kind of how that went. One of my favourite experiences from that time, just to give you a flavour of it, I went to cover an armed siege. Has ever read anybody here ever been to Plumstead? Well done, don't bother. So I went, <laughs> I went over to Plumstead and there's this guy and he's got his wife in the, in the house at gunpoint and by the time I got there, there was kind of a dog-shaped lump in the drive with a pink blanket over it and a lovely red spot growing. So I sent one of my reporters off to go and door knock and thought, I'm going to go and speak to some of the local kids. A couple of hoodies walked up the road towards me. I went, can you, can you tell me, did you, did you know the family? I went, yeah. The, the dog. Those bastards shot the dog. And I went, oh, 
Yeah, because what happened is, you know, they sent the dog out and there was a policeman with the gun and the, the, the dog was, was, was on the Rosa's arm and couldn't get him off, so they shot the dog. He went, bloody lovely dog that was, wouldn't it? A fly, that dog. I'm like, oh, no fuck. Okay, what was the dog's name? Lucifer. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of my newspaper career, but the point is, this all seems really, really rosy. From there I went on to goal setting again, I wanted to be an editor, and then I wanted to be a publishing director, and by the time I hit my early 30s, I was UK director for what at the time was one of the world's biggest multinational publishing companies, Can I Have an Ooh? <laughs> Can I have an ooh like you kind of mean it? <laughs> Everything on the surface looked brilliant. I had the designer pinstripe suits, I had the top of the range Audi, heated leather seats, for at first I kept feeling I could shut myself until I got used to it, it was lovely. And I had bonus checks, I had posh exotic holidays, and on the surface it was great, but inside here it wasn't. You see, the backstory to all of this is that all that goal setting, all that wanting to get to the next level and the next, the next wage packet and the next oh, just the next thing that fell out of reach, is all of that was stopping me from, from looking at what was really going on. So let's go back to when I was in that first job when I got to news editor by the age of 20. What was really going on is that I was in a horrendously abusive relationship. And when I say horrendously abusive relationship, I mean the solicitor I finally worked with was um, close to retirement, specialised in domestic violence and said he'd only ever seen one case that bad in his life. And the kind of abuse it was, was not your, you get stereotypical abuse, but it wasn't your stereotypical abuse. It wasn't a great big bloke punching me. It was a great big bloke. It wasn't Rob. It was a great big, <coughs> lovely. It was uh, emotional abu abuse, psychological abuse, sexual abuse, the stuff that we kind of now talk about in terms of being gaslighting, another lovely term from the States. And I didn't know how to tell anybody what I was going through, so I just kept throwing myself into my job. I didn't know how to explain what was going on because back then we weren't talking about that kind of stuff and there were no benchmarks. So I just kept going for the next level, the next level, the next level. It did get to a point where I felt so trapped that I decided that I'd just try and jump out of life. And has anybody here heard me speak before? Excellent a room full of virgins, just the way I like it. So um, one of the things I tried once I decided that I didn't actually want to take the suicide route because I didn't want to leave that mess for everybody is I tried praying to get a terminal illness and then I did a lot of work on a woo-woo energetic plane to get rid of that. But when that didn't happen, I struck this crazy deal with what, whoever I thought was listening that every day I would go out and I would take ridiculous risks. I'd take as many crazy risks as I could. And then, if I ended up back at my front door that night, because I would have done anything to avoid getting to that back door that night, honestly. If I turned up there, somebody wanted me to live that day. So one morning, in the midst of this um, goal, this, this, this goal setting balanced by crazy, crazy, crazy risks, I got out of bed early because I needed to go to work early because I'd been to a local government planning meeting the night before and I had a front page lead. Has anybody here ever been to a local government planning meeting? You rarely get a good front page lead from a local <laughs> government planning meeting. Honestly, the most exciting thing on the agenda was whether Bill and Ethel were going to be allowed to have a large erection in their back garden. <laughs> shit, shit. <laughs> so I put my foot down. And I had at the time a B-Reg Ford Escort. Glancing around the room, there's probably only about three of you that remember a B-Reg Ford Escort. I don't feel old at all. The pink is not to hide the grey, I promise. I am naturally pink. 
<laughs> I put my foot down in this B-Reg Ford Escort because in front of me there was a brown car and the brown car was driving at what felt like about two miles an hour. I'm going to overtake. So I put my foot down and I started to overtake and as I got level with the driver who looked a bit like Yoda, I realised there was a car coming towards me and at that moment I realised that I was overtaking on the brow of a hill and I genuinely had this split second moment of this is it bliss and getting out. But then common sense kicked in and I've never been big on hurting other people, even when I was a journalist honestly, um, putting out thinking I was going to save the world. <laughs> um, I realised really really quickly that it didn't matter how big my death wish was, I couldn't take anybody else out with me. So I slammed on the brakes in that B-Reg Ford Escort. They weren't like today's brakes in B-Reg Ford Escorts. And suffice to say, I lost control, managed to pull behind without hurting anyone, and ended up flying through the air with the greatest of ease. Uh, well, and my flight was caught by a tree stump at the bottom of somewhere between a six and eight foot ditch. It's different, that depth, every time I tell the story, because I can't remember, but it was a deep ditch. And I don't remember much from there, except that everything went black for a second. And I picked my head up and thought, what's that on the steering wheel? And then I realised it was my eyebrow. And then I glanced across, and the person who'd been in my path of the road had stopped the car. And I thought, they're, they're going to help. They're going to help. What actually happened was she... Honestly, you're just going at the good bit. <laughs> it's OK, it's been recorded. You need to watch it 17 times afterwards and then tell me it word for word, OK? Wonderful. Thank you. Love you. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> so... This lady stopped opposite, she got out of her car and thought, she's going to help, she's going to help. And what actually happened was she said, you stupid girl, what did you think you were doing? And then she got back in her car and drove off. <laughs> uh, has anybody here ever had a bad car accident? Yeah? Well, just a near miss or something, you know, you get the adrenaline surge up and your legs wobble a little bit. Um, I was going through adrenaline, clearly, when you're going through that level of adrenaline, what I realised is that your brain doesn't quite function as it normally does. And my train thought went something along these lines. I've got to get my cassette tapes, my pirated cassette tapes, <laughs> out of the car or it will be looted. <laughs> and then I went, I'm not going to name him because it wouldn't be fair, but let's call him Travis because that's short for travesty. I think that's quite nice. Travis is going to kill me. And I thought, how am I going to get to work? Because, you know, my car's been ditched. But I wasn't thinking there was really anything wrong with the car other than the car's been ditched. And I remember my then best friend who we used to work with pulling up and she went green when she saw just the back corner of my car sticking out and then she was fine as soon as she realised that I was indeed alive. Um, somebody else called the emergency services and they turned up. My parents turned up at the scene and thank goodness for my dad's quick thinking. Because nobody else had stayed around, he was able to kind of shift the facts a little bit so that I didn't look like I'd been driving like a lunatic. He just said I hadn't been driving that long. Somebody had overtaken in my path of the road and I'd panicked and lost control, which was kind of true. So everything was fine. I didn't get into any trouble. I went home because the editor wouldn't let me come in and I insisted I needed to get to work because remember, you know, the importance of the erection. And I called home. I got back to my parents and I called home. I didn't call home, or was that at home? I called through to the office and I spoke to the editor, Dave, because all the best old national editors are called Dave. And I said, I'm going to come in, Dave. I need to talk about this erection. And he said, um, you say Dave had a shock. I went, no, no, I'm coming into work. So about mid-morning, I got into work. I sat there tapping away. One of the guys from production back in the days where they actually used to paste bits of newspaper up onto the board. You know what I'm talking about. You're not that old. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> and um, 
He said, there's a story, I've just been past this car wreck, there's no way anybody got out of that, that's going to be the lead, that's my car. Anyway, Dave said I'd had a shock, so he was going to walk me to the pub at lunchtime and buy me a stiff brandy. About a mile to the pub, so at lunchtime we walked to the pub, about a mile, had a brandy, walked back, about another, about another mile, and at about three o'clock I thought, ooh, that's a bit sore. I saw that. Called the doctor, the doctor referred me to the hospital, got to the hospital, they took some x-rays and then they immediately put me on a flat bed and put my head in sandbags and I lay there for nine hours without anybody telling me what was going on. It's amazing the patterns you can find in polystyrene ceiling tiles when you've been looking at them for nine hours. <laughs> amazing. But you see, if I hadn't been looking at the patterns on the ceiling, I would have had to think about why I was there. And when I heard the men in white coats, mumbled something to my mum and I saw my mum in the distance do something like that. I knew it was bad and that was when they said spinal damage and that was when they said you've broken your back in three places. And you've been walking around like it all day. I was really lucky. Because frankly, you know, I'm here. I'm walking. I was okay. Because of the position of the brakes, I didn't need to be in traction. I had a neck brace, I had crutches for a while really pretty but in that moment something flipped from hopeless to hopeful joe before i continue just remind me what time do you want me to shut up there we are. cool that's all right so anyway something in that moment i kid you not i know it sounds really hippie shit and woo we flipped me out of hopeless and into hopeful I thought, well hold on what if this has happened for a moment what for a reason for a reason what if this has happened for a reason because taz you've got a choice you can sit here and mope because now you've made it even worse. You don't have a car. You really can't escape. You can sit here and mope and you can feel sorry for yourself. You can be a total victim. Or you can think, well, what if this has all happened for a reason? What if? What if there are lots of other people who are trapped in that kind of grey area and don't know what to do? What if, you could, what if this has happened so you can go out and help them? So that's what I did. I decided I was going to turn my life around. Unfortunately, when we have these big things and we think we're going to turn our life around... Sometimes we forget all the promises we've made. So I did get out of that relationship, and it was nasty. And there were death threats, and I did have to go into hiding. Has anybody here ever had to wrestle a loaded 12 bar for ball from a 6 inch, 3 inch bodybuilder? Just me, though. And you know when you think of those videos of women lifting cars off kids? You can, it comes from somewhere. Anyway, went into hiding, was going to do all this amazing stuff and help people, and then I went right back into that comfort zone of goal setting, because then I didn't have to think about anything at all. Which is how I then ended up in South East London and then working for this big multinational publishing company and getting to the top of there and absolutely crumbling beneath my pinstripes. But it took my eight weeks of hell to do anything about it. Because when you're there, and I'm not going to ask any of you to tell me if you're really happy because you know that's none of my business how you're feeling, but you will know if any of this is ringing bells, just take it and do whatever you need to with it, because on paper my life looked fucking brilliant. But inside, I knew that I was shriveling up and dying. I knew that although I could do that job with my hands tied behind my back, blindfolded and standing on my head, I could do that job. But I was depressed as hell. I was on antidepressants, I was on more antidepressants, I was getting to work in the mornings and just getting through to lunchtime and then going and parking somewhere and calling home and crying and then I put the makeup back on and the jacket back on, get back through to the afternoon and then go, go home and cry and that cycle went on for months until my eight weeks of hell hit and in these eight weeks here's what happened. I'll just give you the bullet points or I could talk to you all night. 
My uncle died. Uncle by marriage, but still, bit of a shock. I took a load of shit for my uncle dying because my aunt had come to me to say there's something wrong with Alan, and I'd said it will be okay. Because in my world, even when things aren't okay, it's still going to be okay. Everybody here has a 100% track record of surviving shitty times. So it is going to be okay, even when it doesn't feel it. So when he finally went to the doctors to be checked out for his sore throat and was referred to a specialist and he tried to walk to the EMT unit and was then steered to the cancer ward, we realised it wasn't going to be okay. So he died. My dad had been in hospital. He and Alan were fairly close. My dad came out of hospital and I thought, great, dad's, dad's, dad's going to be well. It's all good. And he dropped dead that night. I'm an only child. Anybody here had to do all the ringing round after a funeral, for, before a funeral? It's not, it's not good, especially when it's just you. Um, then, just after my dad died, a load of family debt came to light that none of us had been aware of. Now, here's the thing, I don't know about you, but when I've been reassured from being this high by my dad, bless him, in his broad, brummy accent, well, we go, go orchids, you got all this, could be all right. Except it wasn't. It wasn't. I'm not going to go into detail, because that would be unfair, but it, it wasn't okay. It wasn't all dad's fault, but it wasn't okay. So I'd never bothered to save because of that, because I didn't need to. I just had fun driving the Audi and booking the big holidays and looking at owner's checks and going, oh, look at that tax free and all that stuff. Gone. Uncle gone. Dad gone. Financial future gone. Shit. Two nights after my dad died, remember my old track record of escaping into the goal setting stuff when the shit hit the fan? Two nights after dad died, I had to go to a head office meeting in Paris. My, uh, my, my colleagues there told me that I shouldn't mention the fact that my dad had just died because it might upset the energy in the meeting. So I sat through that meeting looking like I'd been sleeping with a coat hanger in my mouth. Everything's fine. <laughs> it's October, they were talking about their Day of the Dead celebrations and I smiled all the way through it. I got back from that meeting to find that one night I'd been away, my parents, well at least the outbuildings and the, the gardens had been burgled and lots of stuff had been stolen. Hello, guilt. Yeah, lots of that. A couple of weeks after that, somebody in the family I care about very deeply was given a really nasty health diagnosis, one of those where you think, oh shit, how long have we got, how bad's it going to get? And there were other things as well, but that all happened in eight weeks. And at the end of those eight weeks, when I found myself crying and rocking underneath my mother's dining room table, I realised something had to give and it really couldn't keep being me. I had to do something that was hitting me, not just in this, not just allowing me to be an ego-filled head dragging around the body, but this and this. I did keep working though. It's funny the things you realise in retrospect. It was only in retrospect that I realised that I'd been working for a, through a breakdown for four years. Four years I worked through a breakdown and nobody at work knew because I was a robot. I was the one that sorted everybody else's shit out. And nobody even clocked. Even when I somehow fucked up the courage to go and speak to my peers and say the doctors put me on antidepressants, they shrugged and went, well they've come out like smarties nowadays. And at the time, I was really upset. But now I can look back and think, well, hold on, I was so in robot mode. I so had that smile plastered on. How on earth could I expect them to do anything else? That must have looked so bizarre to them. So to go full circle, why is all this important now? I got out of that, I formed a plan, I dug my way out with a teaspoon. I dug my way out with a teaspoon because I realised the one thing that was actually picking me up when everything about me just wanted to die was helping other people was going to the other department managers who were about to fire someone and said, can I just have a go? Before you get rid of them, can I just have a go? And every time I managed to turn them around, every time, it's a bit like you were talking about with your ex, every time I managed to find what it was that fired them up, 
that made them love the job again, that made life feel important and turned them around. Because not everybody's driven by, you know, by, by the numbers. Some people are more service-led, some people want to help. If you can find out what it is that fires people up, and this will be the same for the clients that you're marketing for, ultimately, if you can find what fires people up, you can turn them around. But in that time, I knew I needed to get out and do something bigger. So I got all the corporate training I could get, I got all the, you know, the, the corporate conflict management, I did NLP, I did coaching, I did enterprise mentoring. I spent 10 years working with shamans and medicine people and no Daily Mail readers. I did not take ayahuasca because you don't need to and it's a load of bollocks. <laughs> there was the drumbeat and movement and breath, there's loads of hippie shit. Anybody here really interested in hippie shit and a bit more into the woo-woo than they'd like to admit, feel free to email me afterwards, I can tell you all about it. But ultimately, I got my way and got out. And I used everything to start helping people professionally. And the way that works, the first client I ever got, has anybody here ever had the friend of a friend who always tugs on the sleeve, can I just ask you about this, can I just ask you about this? That kept happening to me, and eventually I said, yeah, do you want to book an appointment for 45 quid an hour? I'm a lot more now. And she went, yeah, all right. That's how I went into coaching. That's what happened. But then I turned that around, and yes, I still do do all the confidence coaching. Yes, I do take people walking over fire and all that crazy, crazy stuff. Train with the same guys who train Tony Robbins. It can be really empowering. If you strip all the rah, rah, rah crap out of it, it can be really empowering. But that grew. It grew from just working with people on confidence, with some of the hippie shit I do, into helping small businesses, and this is where it does come back to my past and does come back to marketing a little bit, to tell people why it is they do what they do and to give them something to believe in. But before they get to that point, we have to make sure they're actually doing the right work. Because I was doing the right work on paper. And I could, you know, go in there and, and pitch the clients and get money out of them. But I couldn't have gone on forever and eventually they would have noticed that there was no light behind my eyes. And eventually somebody would have come along who really did enjoy it and they would naturally believe in them more because that, that's what happens. So now, once we've ascertained that a client is doing the right thing, I work with them an awful lot in terms of telling their story. Now here's the thing with marketing. Everybody now talks about storytelling. And I'm sorry, this might ruffle feathers a little bit. I don't mean to, but it might. Every third fucking person in marketing now is talking about the power of storytelling. And yet it's very, very rare that you find somebody who can actually tell a good story. And that's where I'm really grateful to my background in journalism. No good telling people, they just need to tell their story. If you first haven't worked with them to work out what their story is, a lot of the time they don't know. And people will come to me and say, Taz, I want you to help me get visible. Yeah, I'm really good at getting media attention. I've been BBC, ITV, HuffPost. I've got a load of stuff, and that's great. But it all comes out of being that word we all hate because it's overused, authentic. And when a client comes to me and says, Taz, I want you to help me get more eyeballs. I want you to help me get more views on social media. I want you to help me get to the point where people want to hear more, want to believe in me. I say, okay, why is it that you're doing what you're doing? No, no, no. I want to talk about my brand and my products and look at this amazing special offer I have over here. No. What people need is to believe in you. What's your story? Why are you doing it? Why does this matter to you? Why? Because if you've got 17 people in a room all offering pretty much the same thing at pretty much the same price point at the same skill level, people are all going to pick somebody different and it's going to be the person that they can relate to on a human level. It's not about B2B, it's not about B2C, it's about H2H, it's about human to human. 
And every time they'll sit there and say, no, Taz, I want to talk about my product. So I say, hold on. We are in a world saturated by coaches. Most of them have just sold aloe vera and said they're suddenly an international business development coach. They're not. They're selling fucking bee poo and aloe. Anyway, we are in a situation now where the world is saturated by coaches, probably because it's unregulated and nobody really knows and it seems easy. Why? Why, with all these coaches, have you chosen to come to me? Well, because I trust you, Taz. Well, you've never met me before. How can you trust me? Because I've heard you speak, Taz. I've seen your TEDx or I've read your books or I've seen you speak somewhere. I've seen a video or I've followed you on social. Well, why does that make you trust me? Well, because I know your story. But why does that make you trust me? Well, because something that you've been through made me think, actually, that, that taps into something that I went through. So I know that you will be able to help. I know, I feel I can trust you because I kind of feel I know you because you've spilled your guts and you've told me who you really are. Well, back at you bitches, that's why. That's why. And for some of you with bigger clients, that's going to be too small fry. But there could be a whole other different talk about, about the potential for individuals in big corporates to develop personal brands and to show that off too. I have never marketed my products and services to people who've been through domestic abuse or breakdown or suicidal thoughts, not ever. But you watch, about 70 to 80% of my clients who choose me have been through something similar. And that's why they connect. It's a given that you're good at what you do. If you're not good at what you do, fuck off and do something else. It's a given that you are good at what you do. By the time a client comes to you, you've got to be good. If you're not doing what you say on the tin, you're doing the wrong thing. So then you've got to go further. Then you've got to give them something else to believe in. And in a world where we're all trying to say, what is the USP? The USP is you. Because people will go to the person that, once they've ascertained they can do it, they're going to go to the person they can relate to, they like, they feel they know, and they feel they trust. I cannot unleash your awesome. The awesome comes from within you. So please, your brands are all beautiful. Of course they are. But be brave enough to step out from behind that logo every now and then and tell people why you are doing what you're doing, why it fires you up, why it matters, because then you will matter to them. Thank you.